Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I am Casey Hunt, and this is CNN Tonight. We are five weeks out from the midterm elections. Republicans appear to be making gains in some key Senate races, which we're going to zoom in on in just a moment. But I want to focus in on this. We are learning over and over again this election cycle that nominating strong candidates does matter if a political party wants to win an election. It matters a lot. But the rules may have changed, with voters willing perhaps to tolerate things that they just wouldn't put up with in the past. Herschel Walker is about to test this hypothesis. The former football star has pitched himself as a values-based conservative candidate, and he is locked in a tight race in Georgia against Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock. Walker has openly backed a national ban on abortions with no exceptions. That's rape, incest, the life of the mother, no exceptions. And he has campaigned on an anti-abortion platform. And now he is denying allegations that he paid for a woman he dated to have an abortion more than a decade ago. The claim was reported by the Daily Beast. We should underscore CNN has not independently verified the allegations. The Daily Beast report claims that Walker paid a woman to terminate a pregnancy that she claims they conceived together in 2009. The Daily Beast says the accuser provided a receipt from the abortion clinic she went to. She provided an image of a check from Walker, reimbursing her for the procedure, along with a get well card that he allegedly sent her with the check. This is supposedly that card with his... Uh, very recognizable signature on it. As for Herschel Walker, he is vigorously denying that any of this happened. I never asked anyone to get an abortion. I never paid for an abortion, and it's a lie. This follows many other scandals that have rocked the Republicans' campaign. Three women, including his ex-wife and an ex-girlfriend, have accused him of threatening them. He also acknowledged fathering multiple children with multiple women that he wasn't married to. One of his children has been trying to raise a giant red flag to conservatives. Family values, people. He has four kids, four different women, wasn't in the house raising one of them. He was out having sex with other women. Do you care about family values? Okay, I'm done. Done. Everything has been a lie. Don't lie on the lives you've destroyed and act like you're some moral family man. Y'all should care about that, conservatives. Again, that's Herschel Walker's son, Christian Walker. The National Republican Senatorial Committee today said that they stand with Walker. And Donald Trump said the same thing, essentially. He said, quote, Walker is being slandered and maligned. Herschel has properly denied the charges against him, and I have no doubt he is correct. Walker's campaign is now scrambling to contain the fallout, but CNN heard that earlier today, his campaign manager told staff that fundraising was surging after the Georgia Senate nominee denied these allegations. That aid also apparently brought up Trump's infamous Access Hollywood videotape, which surfaced weeks before the 2016 election, to try and underscore that, quote, Trump still made it to the White House. So 
Can Walker end up on Capitol Hill after this? Let's take it to our table to CNN political contributors Maria Cardona, Ron Brownstein, and Scott Jennings. Thank you all uh, for being here. Um, Ron, let me start with you as the uh, reporter mm. <laughs> at this table, Just and then we'll, we'll open it up. Yeah. Just back from Georgia. So tell us um, what you learned while you were there and what impact you think this is going to have on the race. Well, I think one thing we have learned, as you were kind of noting, is that these kind of scandals are not going to crater people's support in the way that they have in the past. Congressional elections, including Senate elections, are becoming increasingly parliamentary elections in which many voters are really voting less on the individuals than on which party they want to see control Congress. So it would be surprising to see Walker's support collapse any more than it would have been to see Roy Moore's support collapse in Alabama in 2017 when the revelations came out. So it wasn't about his for more but, to lose. But that's the point. <laughs> it doesn't, it, 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 you are not necessarily going to see him collapse, but it won't take much to tip this race. And by, you know, in almost all public polling, he is trailing. Uh, and he needs momentum down the stretch, I think most people agree, to get over the top. And in particular, uh, Warnock is probably right at the door of the level of support that he needs among suburban white-collar voters. He probably needs like 44 45% among college-educated whites to win. That's what Biden had in right. 2020 when he won the state. Especially he's, women. Yeah. He's polling around 42 or 43. And you've no got to think this is the kind of thing that is just going to make it tough for Walker to get the last few points he needs. Having said that, this could easily go to a runoff with control of the Senate once again at stake. Just oh, unbelievable. Yeah. So, um, Scott Jennings, let me put this to you because, you know, a, a big part of, uh, and, and this is what, you know, his son was alleging, is that there is hypocrisy going on, especially because Walker has taken, quite frankly, one of the most extreme mm. positions of any Republican Senate candidate on how abortion should be dealt with nationally. Here's how Walker has explained his position on abortion policy. I'm a Christian. You know, I believe in life. I've always believed in life. There's no exception in my mind. Like I said, I believe in life. No exception. No for... exception. Again, that's no exception for incest, for rape, for the life of the mother. Almost all these laws that even the reddest states are implementing at least have something in there that accounts for the life or health of the mother. I mean, how do, you know, Republican voters justify this in their minds? Well, Republican voters are worried about issues beyond abortion. I mean, this is the one of the hallmarks of this whole campaign cycle is that Republican voters and I think a lot of independent voters are more concerned about inflation, economy, immigration, crime. And that's the that's really and they're the campaign. not concerned about hypocrisy from their politicians. I mean, I don't know. I mean, we played a lot of video of, of Herschel Walker's family tonight. But we haven't played any of Raphael, Raphael Warnock's wife, who said a lot of things to say about Raphael Warnock, we've not talked about. Well, in about. fairness, she has not said that he put a gun to her head yeah. or anything along in, those In lines. fairness, she has said that he's an actor, that the whole thing is an act. And so I think you've got two guys here that have family. That have, is it? Yeah. I mean, I think, yes. Why? I think we can make a. Why, why, why is it different? A gun, a gun to a head? And, 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 and in, an, he, interview, and in he, an interview with his wife where they talked about his mental health struggles. children struggle. with multiple wives. And then this kind of hypocrisy? Yes, it's No, I, I really well, don't think so because he and his wife did an interview together about his mental health struggles and what he has had to overcome. And it has been, I think, unfairly clipped and made it appear as though she was making an allegation against him when she was appearing you know, with him it, to it, talk about his struggles. The, on, that, on that point, though, we're all focused on the abortion uh, allegation today, understandably, but kind of lost in the sauce. His son tweeted yeah. last night they had to move six times in six months out of fear of him committing violence yeah. against them. And that is something that is, you know, I, I, you know, when people say Rick Scott says it's the Democratic smear machine that is, you know, surfacing this, is his son, who is 
you know, a, a conservative, conservative by all, is his right. son part of the smear machine? I don't know. And you know what? And here's the thing. I agree, like, I agree with one thing you said, that uh, most voters, and I think this is true of people in both parties, are looking at this not through the lens of yeah. individuals, but through the yeah. lens of what does it mean for the country? Right. And here's the, here's the argument that Walker is, could make to overcome all of this. But if you think Joe Biden and the Democrats are doing a great job and you're happy with what you see at the grocery store and you're happy with the country being off in the ditch, by all means, vote for Warnock who will enable all of it. And if you want to check and balance on it, go a different direction. And, and that is and what he will argue. But the question is, in a state that is a 10,000 vote state, yeah. I mean, is there sure. is And this there is a some... United States Senate seat. This right, is exactly. not a small position. Right. Sorry. No, no, I was going to say, like, it, we were talking about Roy Moore. I mean, you know, it did not crater Roy Moore's support when these really disturbing revelations came out about him. But he didn't win in the end, right. even in Alabama, which is a much redder state than Georgia is now. So the question really isn't whether this kind of wipes the slate. It's whether it is just enough of a thumb on the scale in a race that is essentially, you know, very close to begin with. And because it is very close, it will be one on the margins. Scott, you're right. I think that Republicans will absolutely come to his aid. They will not abandon him. The NRSC has already said that. Um, I think he is actually making that coalition stronger because he can point to, he can try to say, they're trying to smear me. But we have not talked about the underlying, what I believe is Mm. not being well counted, the massive mobilization of women who are already pissed off about abortion. And the economy and those other issues will continue to be front and center. But when you are telling more than 50% of the electorate that they don't have rights today that they have enjoyed for 50 years, that is a massive mobilization that I don't think any poll is capturing. Monmouth survey this this week, number one issue by far, inflation. Number seven, abortion. Like I said, the bucket bucket for inflation, the bucket for the pain that people are feeling right now in their everyday lives is a lot bigger than the you know, bucket like, you look, just Scott, laid out. We don't know The question that. for me, I mean, like, yeah, it's not being measured. In a house race, what I talked about is not being measured in the polls. In a house race, I'm willing to yeah. buy your argument, mm-hmm. right? right? Like, people are just saying, I, I'm voting with totally my tribe. I'm right. not. In a Senate contest where you, I mean, Herschel Walker is one of the most famous people. I mean, you could argue at one point he was famous across the country. One of the most famous people in Georgia, undeniably. Raphael Warnock preaches at Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King's church. Mm-hmm. People know this about these people, and they are choosing between two people on these right. margins that Ron is talking about. Right. I, How I do, do you think this is going to matter to those people? I, I totally agree. It is an extremely close race, a few thousand votes here or there. I will just say, people are hurting. The pain is real. And the average Republican is looking, in, in a, in a worst-case scenario, I think the average Republican is looking at this saying, well... Herschel Walker paid for one abortion. Right. Raphael Warnock wants to pay for all of them. And at the last possible minute. But, and that's how they're going to get there, there's, there's, there's the problem. The problem with that is there's a pro-choice majority in the state. That's right. And, and even if every Republican says that, if enough independents say this is someone I just can't abide in the Senate, it's not enough for Walker. And, there, and the real reason Republicans have you to You want say, abortion to be and, the number one issue. And, so bad. And, no, no, and it's also, not. Maria, but, final word. You, also, you <laughs> also have the Trump effect, which is Trump got elected in 2016, but then you saw a huge backlash from independent, moderate, suburban women who did not want that kind of, not just hypocrisy, but frankly, misogyny 
which is what you can underscore, is what Herschel Walker has shown throughout his life. But they are there. But there (laughs) may be just enough of them. But there may be just enough of them. I'm sorry, the women of of Buckhead, uh, Atlanta, is sort of my encapsulation (laughs) of what we're talking about, and they are very important. Mm -hmm. All right. Maria, thank you so much for being with us today. (laughs) Your voice was (laughs) very much in the mix, so we really appreciate it. Ron and Scott are going to stick around. Uh, Ahead here, Donald Trump takes his fight over the documents seized at his Mar-a-Lago home to the Supreme Court his emergency request, and what it could mean for his battle with the DOJ. Up next. Former President Trump is now turning to the Supreme Court over those seized documents marked classified at Mar-a-Lago. In an emergency request, Trump's attorneys argue that an appeals court, quote, lacked jurisdiction, end quote, when it ruled that the DOJ could keep the rough would keep the roughly 100 classified items separate from a special master's review. Trump's attorneys are now asking the high court to ensure the special master gets to review those items. It's just the latest instance in which Trump is involving justices in his investigations. Remember, three of the six conservative justices, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett, were Trump appointees. I want to bring in Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor, and Miles Taylor, the former chief of staff to Trump's then Homeland Security Secretary. And of course, Scott Jennings is back with us as well. So, Shan, let me start with you uh, on the legal uh, stuff here. What is Trump trying to accomplish with this request? Uh, Honestly, he's trying to accomplish further delay. (laughs) He wants to slow the whole thing down. And he's making a very narrow jurisdictional argument, which is that the 11th Circuit lacked the authority, the jurisdiction, to review any part of this order. And it's a little bit convoluted. Uh, One of the points they make is they claim that the district court Judge Cannon, Trump appointee, didn't really say anything because she didn't tell the Justice Department or the government to do anything, merely to let the special master review the documents. But my question would be, how is the special master going to get the documents if they don't give it (laughs) to him? So it's kind of convoluted. (laughs) So just to follow up on that, I mean, obviously the court can decide whether or not they want to take this up. They don't have to. Um, Clarence Thomas has requested that the DOJ respond to Trump's filing by 5 o'clock next Tuesday. I mean, how do you think the court is going to respond to this? I think they're going to respond by upholding the 11th Circuit. Uh, Trump has not had the sort of record of success with SCOTUS as he thinks he deserves to have. And this is the kind of legal technical issue that they don't rule on the basis of a cultural issue, religious beliefs. And remember, they're going up against an attorney general who's a former Court of Appeals judge, as well as the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. I think the Supreme Court's going to uphold the 11th Circuit. All right. So, Miles, um, Trump's team in this filing also talked about <laughs> the former president's declassification powers, which, of course, have come up and been a, a periodic issue. The filing says Trump was still president of the United States when any documents Bearing classification markings were delivered to his residence in Palm Beach, Florida. As such, his authority to classify or declassify information bearing on national security flowed from this constitutional investment of power in the president. But, of course, they are still refusing to say whether or not he actually did declare them declassified. Like, what is going on? Well, I I think that's what gets to this order. I mean, Shan is right that this is narrow, but I don't think that means it's insignificant. Why do they want the court to rule this way? Well, it's been very evident that Trump's defense attorneys want access to the documents. Why? Because the documents are likely what are going to lead to an indictment. They need the documents to mount the defense that they want to mount. Now, are they going to get them? That depends on what the Supreme Court says. It ultimately depends 
on what's going to happen after the Supreme Court makes a decision. But this is going to be, make no mistake, a document-by-document fight because each of those potential indictments is going to depend on each of those documents. So why do they want to see what's in them? Well, Trump didn't have a catalog of what those documents were before they were taken. I mean, I saw how Trump handled things in his Oval Office when he had staff to handle his classified documents. He didn't handle it well. Sometimes he waved classified documents in front of reporters. They want to get those documents so they can figure out what their defense actually is on the things the Justice Department seems likely to indict them on. And look, here's another question. It's been eight weeks, eight weeks since Donald Trump was found with documents in his possession that he lied to the federal government about having. And we still don't know why he had them and what he was intending to use them for. I mean, that's they've had a zillion filings to indicate even the smallest excuse for why Trump had these documents. His team still hasn't provided one. Well, the thinking seems to be because they can't do that without incriminating him. I mean, Scott Jennings, um, from a political perspective here, uh, I mean, there are a lot of Republicans in Washington who would really love for Donald Trump to go away, even if they won't (laughs) say that in public. Um, What is the hope here in terms of how this case will be handled among people behind the scenes? Well, I mean, I don't, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, on the, on the one hand... I mean, they're hand, about to nominate him again, potentially. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, the, the, there's been a big argument in the Republican Party over the last several months, really since he left office, about whether if he got indicted, if it would, if it would make him a martyr or not, you know? And so, I, I mean, that, that, that has been a legitimate debate that's been going on behind the scenes. I will say about the Supreme Court, I have a lot of confidence that they're going to rule on the merits of the law. I don't think they're going to you know, appointed by whoever. It doesn't matter. I think I, I trust this court to do the right thing. I mean, they have showed in yeah. the previous instances where the president has gone to them, they have not really indulged his tendency. Absolutely. So I, I think <laughs> I think that's number one. Number two, I agree on the delay stuff. Number three, I think where that gets super interesting is, you know, there's been some indication uh, by some of his people that are close to him uh, in public domain this week that he may want to announce a campaign by Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so if this thing's still going on after he becomes a candidate, you know, what does that do to the Department of Justice? I have no idea. Uh, but I'm guessing they're hoping to push it out beyond that, any indictments, because it helps them, you know, muddy the waters and make it look political. So, Oh, boy. Well, uh, here we go. 2024. <laughs> Five weeks till the midterm elections, but we're going to be in the thick of all of this. Um, I mean, we kind of already are. Scott Jennings, thank you very much for being here tonight. Shannon Miles are going to stick around. One of the first cases already being heard by the new Supreme Court is a major test of the Voting Rights Act. Is gerrymandering in Alabama designed to cut right through the heart of the black vote? We're going to talk with the man leading the fight for change and what he's looking for from the justices when CNN Tonight returns. Here is the reality on the ground in Alabama. The state's white population is shrinking, and its black and Hispanic population is growing. But these shifting demographics are not represented in Congress. And you're looking at the reason why. This is Alabama's seventh congressional district. It was gerrymandered to ensure that it would become the only district in the state where black people make up the majority. That's not our assessment here. A three-judge panel, including two judges that were appointed by Donald Trump, ruled unanimously that the state's congressional map was illegal. They said, quote, black voters have less opportunity than other Alabamians to elect candidates of their choice to Congress. The Supreme Court heard arguments in the case today. In her first case, the newest Supreme Court justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, said issues of race matter. 
especially when it comes to the 14th Amendment guaranteeing equal justice under the law. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not a race-neutral or race-blind idea in terms of the remedy. Hmm. On the merits of the law, Justice Elena Kagan called this one a, quote, slam dunk. But with the court's 6-3 to three conservative majority, even slam dunks are not a sure thing. I'm joined now by one of the people who is suing Alabama over the congressional map, Evan Milligan. Evan, thank you so much uh, for being here tonight. I, I really appreciate uh, having your perspective. And I just want to start by talking about the real-world impact that this is having in Alabama in terms of who is representing Alabamians in Congress. Sure, and thanks for having me. So in Alabama right now, we have one of our seven congressional districts that has a majority uh, black voting age population. And that district is District 7. It's represented uh, by Congresswoman Terry Sewell. But with the, with, you know, with the exception of that district, um, none of our other congressional districts actually have a, a real footprint in the Black Belt region of our state. Or, and, and the Black Belt is the central part of our state. It's, it's one of the poorest regions of the country, but also one of the most culturally rich areas in our country. We have things dating back to the origins of gospel, uh, bluegrass music, country. So there's a lot of things that have, that have come out of this part of our, our state. And without congressional representation, it's really hard to deal with some of the infrastructure issues there, some of the issues related to uh, the need to, to bring in um, you know, new employers or manufacturers for jobs. So having an additional district will bring more representation for that area. So let's talk about exactly you know, what this looks like on the map. I want to put this up for, for all of our viewers. This shows that there are key moments in the civil rights movement. Remember, so much of this unfolded in Alabama. The spot of Rosa Parks' arrest is on one side of that red line. Right. And the site of Dr. Martin Luther King's church is on the other side of that line. So District 7 has a black representative. That's Terry Sewell, as you right. mentioned. District 2 uh, does not. I mean, what, talk about the symbolism of that. Sure. It, 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 so when we're, when we're drawing um, maps in this way, we're basically, uh, in, District 7, in the case of District 7, uh, pooling lots of black communities together is called packing. So we're packing communities together. Then in the other districts, we're cracking them. So whereas that we do have a black population that could warrant, you know, additional, um, at least one other additional opportunity district, what we have is those communities basically being diluted among the remaining districts. So in that map, you see you have a, an example of a city that has considerable uh, black history, black communities on all sides of it. Montgomery County, Montgomery City have black communities that are very old on all points of the city. But with the exception of those that are on the southwest and western side, those communities have been drawn into District 2, which is a, which is a majority white district. So as to, and one of the impacts is that it dilutes the votes of those, those black communities that are in, in, in those neighborhoods. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. And I think it really helps people wrap their head around the idea that this, the way that the, these lines were drawn is separating neighbors from neighbors and people with shared common political interests that are different from people perhaps in a farther geographic area in this right. way that, that, that seems, or the, that this you know, judicial panel said is essentially arbitrary. Um, 
So Alabama is trying to argue that it goes beyond this map, that the the Voting Rights Act only covers intentional discrimination. And they say that this is not that. We heard multiple conservative justices push back on that today. Listen. My understanding uh, uh, of um, uh, our, our cases is that you don't have to show intent. The statute itself says that you don't have to show discriminatory intent. So what do you take uh, from, from what they had to say there, that you don't actually have to mean for it to be discriminatory for it to be illegal? I would hope that's, that's where the ruling falls. Um, today, you know, obviously, when we look at cases of discrimination in governments or even corporations, it's not that we always will find that email or that letter that says, I intend to discriminate against XYZ person or group. Um, and so that's, that's what leads us to tests that that Supreme Court has has uh, passed down. And in the case of, you know, with our with our case that we brought, we actually did a three factor test on the front end to first establish that there was an instance of, um, you know, one cognizable ethnic group voting in a block. So that would be black voters in the black belt. Then we needed to establish that there were patterns of white voters voting in a block um, and to to uh, overcome that, that right. you know, the black community's votes. And then the, the, the third thing was establishing that there was, so that, that, that establishes racial polarization. So if we, if we show those things, then we, we, if we show that it's possible to create a map that also provides another opportunity district and also uh, comports with traditional principles of redistricting, then that it's possible to show that there has been at least a, the, the inference of a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Right. So that's what, you, that's what you hear those, those justices agreeing with the lower court on there. Well, it's going to be a while until we get the decision, but certainly very interesting to hear the arguments in this case today. Uh, and Evan Milligan, thank you very much for your perspective Thank you for today. having me. We really appreciate yeah. it. Coming up, the Oath Keepers sedition trial. Jurors heard a secret audio recording of a meeting with talk of bringing weapons to D.C. and preparing to fight on behalf of then-President Trump. But did the feds miss a key opportunity long before January 6th? That's next. Dramatic moments playing out in a federal courthouse today during the historic sedition trial of five members of the Oath Keepers for their alleged roles in the January 6th insurrection. Prosecutors unveiled secretly recorded audio from an alleged November 2020 planning meeting where members discussed plans to bring weapons to Washington, D.C. This is in November. Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes is heard saying, quote, we're not getting out of this without a fight. There's going to be a fight. But let's just do it smart and let's do it while President Trump is still commander in chief. He continued, quote, if the fight comes, let the fight come. Let Antifa go. If they go kinetic on us, then we'll go kinetic back on them. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for that. If things go kinetic, good. If they blow bombs up and shoot us, great. Wow. Because that brings the president reason and rationale to invoke the Insurrection Act, is what he was talking about. Shan Wu, Miles Taylor, and Ron Brownstein are back with me to discuss. So, Shan, um, Shan I want to touch on, like, kind of the legal um, situation uh, here. I mean, how, how damning is that audio? Oh, it's, it's very damning. <laughs> I mean, very. <laughs> yeah. Sort of an obvious question. Yeah, but. it's the kind of thing that prosecutors really salivate over having that kind of evidence. And uh, it's, frankly, very hard for the defense to rebut. I mean, I understand uh, one of the counsel is trying to say, look, this is still protected speech. 
that's fine. He's not being prosecuted mm. for a speech. Mm. He's prosecuted for taking part in an armed insurrection. That's the problem for the defense here. Okay, yeah. so speaking of an armed insurrection, I want to show everyone what Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin, he's up for uh, re-election, seems on track as of today to win said re-election, uh, but it is a close race. Here's what he had to say uh, about January 6th. But to call what happened on January 6th an armed insurrection, I just think it's not accurate. You saw the pictures inside the Capitol. I saw that day. The, the, the armed insurrectionists stayed within the rope lines in the rotunda. So um, mm. we should probably underscore that, uh, well, they put out a statement basically saying he wasn't saying the thing that he said. Um, his campaign did. Uh, but you heard him there. Um, Ron Brownstein... We hear, on the one hand, this tape of the Oath Keeper saying, hey, we're going to do this while Trump is still president, so he'll invoke the Insurrection Act. And then you have a senator yeah. who was there on January 6th uh, saying this. You know, people who study political violence, your former colleague Elizabeth Newman and others, will say that one of the most important things in tamping down political violence is for the political leadership of a country to send a clear and unequivocal message that it is unacceptable, that it is outside the bounds. And that is really the opposite of what we have seen happen in the Republican Party over since January 6th. They simply have not sent that kind of message. Uh, there have been too many officials who have tried to normalize or downplay uh, what happened. Uh, as a result, you get polls like the CBS poll a few months ago where half of Republican voters described January 6th as patriotic. More than half described it as defending freedom. That doesn't mean all of them are going to undertake a violent act, but it does mean for that fringe on the edge of the coalition, they do not feel they are getting a clear message that this is unacceptable. This reads you out of polite political society. And when Ron Johnson says something like that, there are people who interpret it as basically a green light. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, it seems like he is not condemning it, Miles. I, oh, I mean, to, to buttress Ron's point, simply look at how out of touch Ron Johnson is with the reality of what happened on yeah. the ground. He picked the wrong week to say this was not an armed insurrection. The week we have audio of key plotters of January 6th saying it is, wait for it, an mm -hmm. armed insurrection that they were planning. I mean, the actual participants said that's what their intent was. It's like Ron Johnson coming out in a murder trial and saying, that guy's not a murderer. And then the murderer is saying, no, no, I'm, I'm actually a murderer. I mean, it's, it's, it's totally ignoring the reality. And, and as Ron notes, that allows this behavior to get normalized. It's allowed half of the country to start believing that what was legitimately an armed insurrection was just uh, perhaps a tourist visit or something acceptable. I think that's really worrying from a law enforcement perspective. Mm -hmm. But there's another element here. We found out in that case that this recording was actually submitted to the FBI before January 6th. And the Bureau did not act on it until it was submitted again the following year. That's really alarming to me from a public safety perspective. The FBI was very focused on racial justice protests the previous summer in Black Lives Matter yeah. and Antifa, and so was my former agency, DHS. They were not focused the way they should have been on violent right-wing extremist groups. Yeah, no, I mean, that was, that was one of the more uh, remarkable things. I mean, they didn't discover this because until the, the tip was resubmitted in March, it was first submitted in November of 2020, according to CNN reporting. I mean, and the other thing, uh, Ron, and Chan, I'm interested in your perspective, too, on this and from, a, from a law enforcement and legal perspective. I mean, we've sort of seen the arc of this throughout, mm. right? I mean, it started in 2016 at Trump rallies yeah. when smaller acts of violence became 
celebrated in a way, uh, occasionally by the man himself on the stage. Uh, it kind of continued uh, throughout. I mean, from Trump saying he could shoot people on Fifth Avenue to what happened in Charlottesville, it kind of was this slow boil that ends in January 6th. And now we're at the point where the New York Times is, you know, reporting that threats to lawmakers are yeah. through the roof and not on only, both sides. Look, I mean, not only lawmakers, uh, local public health officials, right. local election officials, local school board officials. Donald Trump this week saying that Mitch McConnell has a death wish uh, and, uh, a, you know, a, a, you know, kind of a slinging a racist slur at his wife. Has there been a Republican senator, including Mitch McConnell, who have raised an objection to Trump using that language. Our political life is different than it was 20, 30, 10 years ago. I mean, it's in, different in, in the last, in, yes, five years. In the routinization of this kind of violent imagery and violent threats, up and down, you know, up and down kind of the, the, the political system, um, this is a different country. It is kind of moving in a direction where political violence, I mean, is, is sort of integrated and, again, normalized. And what's missing is a clear, unequivocal declaration by a broad range of Republican leaders that this is unacceptable. We're just not hearing that. And this is a challenge for law enforcement, too. It is. I think to that point, um, it's a challenge that we have to be careful about laying too much at the feet of law enforcement. Law enforcement is not going to solve this issue. I mean, this is a broader societal issue. It's a political issue. It's a lack of leadership. Law enforcement, in a lot of ways, is by nature reactive. So they're reacting to new volumes of threats new kinds of threats, but they can't really get at the cause of the threats. And the cause of those threats is a very profound one right now. It's this normalization of this kind of rhetoric uh, with no accountability. Yeah. It does tell us that, you know, we need to be paying closer attention when people are sending recordings like this to the FBI, <laughs> to your point. Right. Shan Wu, Miles Taylor, Ron Brownstein, thank you guys all for being with us tonight. We really appreciate it. Coming up, a Northern California city living in fear tonight is a serial killer behind the shootings of seven people. The police chief of Stockton, California, joins me with an urgent plea for help. Next. Is a serial killer on the loose in Stockton, California? That's the question that authorities are trying to answer tonight after seven people were shot in separate attacks that police say were related. Six of those attacks were deadly, and five happened in just the last three months. The victims, five Hispanic men between the ages of 21 and 54, a 35-year-old white man, and a 46-year-old black woman who survived. Police say that they connected the cases through ballistics. And tonight, officials released this brand new video showing a, quote, person of interest in the shootings. Stockton, California Police Chief Stanley McFadden joins me now. Um, Sir, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And I know uh, on what has been a very difficult period uh, for all of you. Can you walk us through what we're seeing in the video that you put out today and, and why, what stands out to you about this person? Yes, absolutely. You know, thank you for having me here today. You know, our, our town is mourning w- with the loss of these uh, recent individuals. And what we found, if you look at the video, is we want our communities to take, pay attention to how he walks. Um, he has an inconsistent walk about him. As well, he has a very tall posture also when he walks. It's very, yeah, I mean, it is interesting and, and definitive. I mean, wh- 
what about this video ties him to one of these events? Here's what we know is this is a person of interest where we've seen this individual show up at more than one scene. Uh, we haven't seen this individual committing a criminal act, but seems to be showing up in some of our recent homicides. So it's a person that we definitely want identified. Um, you know, we have a very large reward, 125,000 now for this individual, and we just need the community's help in locating this person. So Stockton's mayor said earlier today that we don't know at this point if there is just one individual as we see here, or if it's a series of indis- individuals who are responsible for these homicides. I mean, in your opinion, are all of these killings the work of a serial killer? Well, you know, if you go by definition, you know, absolutely, you know, we have, you know, a series of, of serial murders occurring in the city. Uh, what, what we can't say is if it's one person or if it's multiple people. You know, we're going through a lot of evidence still. You know, we have a great all-star team that's working together on this. And we hope to have a lot more information to we can make that determination. But per definition, yes, we have a serial killer or killers. So scary. So you connected these cases through the ballistics. I mean, what, what more can you tell us about that? Have you determined that one gun was used to carry out all these shootings, even that one that was outside of Stockton in Oakland? Well, thus far, you know, it's been a combination of ballistics and, you know, our video footage. You know, we have several hours of video footage. Uh, thank you to our federal and state partners for helping us review this stuff. But right now we're interconnected via some ballistics and video footage. Okay. So what other factors may have contributed uh, to these shootings being related? I mean, we know that the one survivor was a woman, but all the other victims were male. What, what, what do these victims tell you about the connections? You know, here's what we're finding in all of these cases is that, you know, it's very dark areas where there's not very many cameras where they're alone, um, often are caught off guard, you know, maybe relaxing in a vehicle or, or walking alone in almost pitch darkness. Um, we believe that perhaps, you know, that this individual or individuals may be looking for the area during daylight to anticipate where cameras may be and what would be the the best approach for this person or persons to take. Well, that's terrifying. And could there be other cases that we're not yet aware of? Well, that's what we're, uh, you know, we're going through all all of our unsolved cases. Uh, We're partnering with other agencies, you know, throughout the county. You know, that's something that we hope to bring light on if there are other cases. Right now, we don't have any evidence that shows that, nor do we have any other statements or information from our partners that there are other cases. Well, and here's, here's hoping uh, for all of, of the residents of your city and for your force that, that it stays that way. Thank you very much, uh, Chief Stanley uh, McFadden. Uh, we'll, of course, be watching this very closely. Thank you very much. We'll be right back. like to share a moment of gratitude with all of you before we go. Today marks one year since I had surgery to remove a brain tumor. I'm humbled to be able to say that I am completely healthy now and can physically live my life as though none of this ever happened. But I really can't lead my life like it never did because I have just learned so much from what happened. I am so grateful now to understand 
the things that I was forced to grapple with because I had this tumor growing in my head. Um, This picture was before the surgery when they drew the Sharpie line to show where they were going to cut. I was only 36 years old when I was diagnosed uh, with this tumor. It was on a scan, so there was no way to know what kind it was until they opened up my head. I had to spend weeks planning what life would look like for my then two-year-old son, what that would look like without me there. I thought of my husband having to be a parent on his own, having to start over. I thought about my parents losing a child. And after surgery, you know, I was so blessed to learn that I was one of the lucky ones. The tumor was benign. But I was also extremely lucky to have, through all of this, what truly matters. And in having to face down my own mortality, to be able to truly understand what that meant at an age when, you know, I still have, thank God, all the time in the world to change how I live. Uh, Because the people that we love and the health of our bodies matter more than anything else ever can or will. And showing up for them and for ourselves day in and day out is absolutely what matters the most. And I am so grateful to God and to everyone in my life who carried me through this trial and brought me to this changed place. Uh, And I'm grateful to all of you. So many of you sent messages of support to me, and many of you have shared your own stories of trial. And I just want to say thank you for trusting me with that. Thank you all for watching tonight. I will be back here tomorrow night. Don't go anywhere, though. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.